We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, Go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by a legendary figure in New York chess. He is an author, a trainer, a competitor, possibly a hustler or gambler, as we'll discuss. I don't know how everyone feels about those terms. But at his peak, he was a top 25 player in the United States. He's crossed paths and played blitz with many chess legends. He was born the same year as Bobby Fischer in the same city, of course. He once famously sprung an opening surprise on him and beat him in the Evans Gambit, as we will discuss. Um, obviously, Fisher won more games than he did, which ha- tends to happen when you play Bobby Fischer. Um, <laughs> Yasser Sarawan helped him with... Uh, was one, was the editor of his first book, Chess Gladiator, and he's been working on a new memoir tentatively titled The Last Gamesman. Our guest also plays Scrabble, Bridge, Poker, Backgammon, and dabbles in betting on horse racing as well. So lots to talk about, but first and foremost, chess. So let's welcome him to the show, Fide Master Asa Hoffman. Asa, how are you? 
Hi, nice to see you. I like to see a live face, even if we're not face to face. Yeah, we a human face, a human face. Yeah, we can see each other through the cameras. And as a former New York City resident, of course, I uh, have crossed paths with Asa and uh, exchanged pleasantries and chess games a few times. Although usually the chess games don't go so well for me. Um, where where are you, by the way? I live in Central New Jersey these days. So oh, New Jersey. Yeah, well, that's not a, not even a foreign country. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. It's if I were to take the like drive to the train station and go to the Marshall, that would take two hours. And when you have young kids, it just feels like an eternity. So it feels very close, but very far away these days. Well, I'm, I don't go too often, but I can walk to the club. Wow, so. I'm jealous. Um, shout out to the Marshall. So, Asa, I thought what we would start with is a topic that. I also sort of uh, broached with Frank Brady. Um, obviously, I believe you're 78, right, Asa? Right. Yeah. So amongst the older guests that we've had, although still looking good and sounding sharp, I have to say, but that means that you lived through the Fisher boom and, of course, had kind of a ringside seat being your many interactions with Fisher. So as we record, of course, here in 2021, Chess is uh, seeing a, a good deal of popularity. So I was curious, Asa, if you could compare what it was like in 1972, seeing that explosion to, to the upsurge that Chess is seeing these days. Well, the upsurge these days is, uh, it's all computer stuff, basically. And the uh, the Queen's Gambit movie um, did a lot for chess, of course. Uh, we watched it, my wife and I watched it. We found it very amusing, <laughs> but I wouldn't say it had too much to do with uh, real chess. It's just like a feel-good, you know, uh, story of a young woman. Yeah, the karate kid of chess. Although what, what I liked about it is... You know, it's easy to sort of portray these kind of dingy, dark rooms that chess is often associated with. Um, not not wrongly, by the way, but um, but they well, they used to be that. Yeah, way. yeah, less so than it used to be. <laughs> um, I'm sure you've been in your share. Um, but they captured that that it's not just about that. That there's also like an allure and an escapism. So I think that that, along with as you say, sort of the underdog story, is part of the reason that it resonated. But I'm I'm glad to hear that that you enjoyed it. But so from your perspective, it's it doesn't it's a different feel than than the Fisher Broom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it feels different because of all these online tournaments and. You know, everybody's um, has computers. People's uh, phones can beat me. You know, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Like I go by a park, someone says, "Will you play my phone for money?" And I have to say no <laughs> because I know their phone is a strong grandmaster. Yeah, you and you and everyone else has that problem, so I wouldn't feel too badly about that. And um, speaking of the of the Fisher boom, Asa. So obviously, uh, again, you've had many encounters with Fisher. What is your first memory of Bobby Fisher? Well, let's see. I, I met everybody who was around in 1960. That was the year I graduated from high school. And I sort of decided, I hadn't 100% decided yet, but uh, in between graduating from high school and going to college for a while, I set out and I met everybody in the chess world. I must have met Bobby Fisher in the uh, Manhattan Chess Club, which at the time was in the Hotel Woodrow on West uh, 60th Street pretty sleazy place uh -huh. but there were a lot of interesting people there uh, mr kmach i guess everyone's heard of famous author was the manager 
and Horowitz was there. And my most famous opponent there was not a chess player, was the actress Sylvia Miles. Oh, really? Yeah, Midnight Cowboy and others. Quite a beauty. How was her chess remember, game? But, uh, not that bad. I would say she was about a, a B player. That's wow. That's, uh, yeah, she didn't study or or take lessons. She just liked to push wood. Okay. She moved fast. You know. I don't think she ever played in a tournament. So for for newer listeners, B player we associate with between sixteen hundred and eighteen hundred USCF, and you could do your own online rating conversion uh, as we always have to do these days. So you first remember seeing Fisher when he was around the age of seventeen, Asa. And when's the first time you remember playing chess with him? Soon, soon after uh, we met, I played him. Um, he insisted on on playing for something. Unfortunately, that something was three dollars a game, which is about twenty dollars a game in today's money. And a lot of people actually couldn't afford to play him, or they just didn't want to lose their money. But I think most of them were just scared because usually people are watching, and you're going to sit there and lose every game, you know, most likely. But um, I had the opposite. The same as I've had throughout my, my entire career, which we can talk about later. I always sought out the strongest player to play for the least money that he would play for. And I figure it was very good training, cheap chess lessons. Yeah, and it doesn't get any better than Fisher. Obviously, he was already basically a legend, already a grandmaster. And Yeah, he won, won the U.S. Championship several times. Uh, he was a grandmaster. And a lot of us thought that he could be the world champion if, if he could hold it together Mentally. So was it already clear that 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 was an issue? It was clear to me. (laughs) No, it was clear to a lot of people that. uh, So how he had he had some problems. He was. I mean, you want to elaborate? Yes, please. He seemed he seemed nervous around strangers. Okay. And and too many people in the place, like on the club that he didn't know. Mm -hmm. In fact, if that would happen, he would say, "Too many weekies around here." Got to get out of here. He'd run and grab his hat and coat off the coat rack, and he would run out, um, followed by a small entourage of which I was one. Okay. But he he was friendly enough when, uh, you know, there were just like a few people around uh, yeah. who he knew. And playing Blitz, he would like hum, hum rock and roll songs and stuff like that. And, uh it, it was fun playing with him, but very intimidating, of course. But I find the more that you play a grandmaster, you will do better. Yeah. Because you do learn something about their style. It's just, you know, I mean, Fisher was, you know, <laughs> if people can't even imagine, I guess, how he was. You could just read about it. He was like a human computer that moved instantly. You know, and he laughed at my uh, primitive threats. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing is those on those occasions when he actually blundered, he would recoil and hiss like a snake. <laughs> he would go like that, you know, like if he blundered a pawn or something. But then he would start moving even faster and faster. And, you know, it was hard to finish him off. But Sounds- odd thing was, excuse me, that uh, he was a clock abuser, which I found odd. He hit the clock with the palm of his hand, like boom, boom, boom. Like that, and other strong players I played, uh, like Bernard Zuckerman was a very frequent op- opponent of mine, and uh, well, later Walter Brown, Sarawan. We only just hit the clock with one finger because obviously you don't move any faster if you 
you know, bash it with your palm than if you press it with a finger. Yeah, so it sounds in, it sounds intimidating playing Fisher. I mean, you mentioned this hissing like a snake thing, and I've we've all played at least uh, those old school people who you know played some blitz games for for money and stuff, and played in sort of blitz in a competitive environment. We've all played the clock abusers you mentioned. It sounds like on top of him just being better than everyone, like the experience itself must have been kind of daunting. No, Asa. Well, I said most people would they rather watch somebody else get beaten. Right. I mean, it was kind of scary, but uh, I didn't scare that easy. You know, it's not going to be a fist fight with a big guy. It's just a guy with a big rating. You know. Yeah. Well, nothing to, nothing to be scared of. Yeah, and of course, I, famously, you've got, as I mentioned in the intro, this this game that that you beat him at the flea house. You sprung an opening trap on him. Um, could uh, could we get could we hear that story, yeah. Asa? That game was actually uh, played in the Manhattan Chess Club. Oh, okay. I did play Fisher in, in the Marshall, the Flea House, the Manhattan, and various joints in the village where we all all used to play chess. All right, talking about that game, this supposed brilliancy was actually one of the um, more unoriginal games that I played. <laughs> so this was analyzed probably maybe the only book Fisher never read, Common Sense in Chess by Lasker. And he gives a brilliant variation, which Fisher didn't fall into. He just lost his queen. If you look in the Gladiator book or the analysis of the game, you'll see there's a smothered mate, you know, uh, on the white side. But we played a lot of Evans Gambits. Um, let's see. I guess I wrote in the Gladiator book, Fisher liked to test his skill uh, playing these uh, double king pawn kind of wild variations. We also played the Cosio classical Fianchetto defenses to the Royal Lopez for both sides, King's Gambit. Uh, you know, played a lot of classical stuff, though. In more serious games, he always played the Sicilian. Okay, yeah, of course, famous for playing the Nidorf. And um, the the lore goes, they said that in that match, that was uh, that was the f- first of, of 19 games. Is, the, is that part of the story? No, too? I don't think we played that many games. Okay. It was the first game, and I was getting like 20 to 1 money odds. Okay. And um, he pulled money out of every pocket, and I think we cleaned him out, but um, I agreed to continue. I said, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> if I win another one, um, you know, uh, you, you can owe me. Yeah. And I remember I played particularly well that day. I actually had him busted in maybe two other games, which – you know, I could have won if I, if I played a, l- a little better, you know. You know it was one of those good days for That's me. great. Amazing. But, but people always, I always find it funny when people ask me, how did you do against Bobby Fisher in general? To which I, I reply, well, how do you think I did? <laughs> I mean, but I would guess that I won um, maybe 2% of the games that I played. Between two and four percent, let's say, but of course, other people uh, were snided. You know, they never could win a game. I heard that uh, the late Steve Bramline, who was a good friend of mine, played a lot of blitz with Fisher in California, and they said he won twenty percent of the games. I, I don't know if that's true or not. That sounds like an awful lot, but he was a great blitz player, much better than me. And who else? Uh, so I'm guessing Fisher probably assumes the pole position. Who else are the strongest blitz players you've ever played, Asa? Um, well, there's 
none like Fisher, but um, people that were famous for Blitz, Sirawan, of course, Shirazi, and Ginger Hashvili. Yeah. Uh, Roman Roman played a lot with Shirazi, actually. And well, it's quite a few years ago already, but I I played a legend uh, out of town, uh, Valentin Arbakov, who was easily beating everybody. And I had a good match with him, winning like four out of 20. You know, that, that was very good for me. So I guess they're the best. I tried to get, well, I played a lot of Russians, but I didn't play the best whenever I would meet Tal or Spassky. Uh, they were tired from doing something that was busy, like they didn't want to play. So I played some young players, but uh, well, I played the Polgars. I played all the Polgars. Wow, amazing. In blitz, blitz tournaments. and uh, So were that during their famous visits to the New York Open? or? Um... Yeah, they visited a few times. Um, yeah, I met them all. I actually drew a, a tournament game once with Susan, and she beat me a few and, I guess we played in the Rapids in Manhattan. Okay, a couple of times. I didn't. I didn't play them that much. My first wife was Hungarian, and you know she was very happy to meet them. She was born in Budapest. Mm-hmm. And I think it might have been when I interviewed I am Stewart Rachel's. There was a story of Judith playing in the Skittles room during one of the New York Opens, and and her dad uh, staking her, Laszlo staking her for for games for money. Do you were you there for any of that? No, I don't think I saw that, but I know they let her in the unrated section, right, which was famously. like 12 years old or something, and she won every game. I mean, I don't know actually what her strength was, but uh, obviously she was incredibly strong. And uh, um, Some people get to be much better early, early at Blitz than slow. Yeah, another one to mention I didn't mention before is Delugi. Delugi was killing us all when he was 12, 13 years old in Blitz, mm-hmm. but he didn't become a grandmaster until uh, later. Then there were... A f- other people who were fantastic blitz players, but they never went on to go far. I don't know if you know the name Zamora. Oh, Jorge, Jorge yeah. Zamora. Jorge Zamora. Yeah, he's my generation, very, so he was like very strong, yeah. like a legend. Yeah, very strong, very strong blitz player. Yeah, um, I think he's still doing chess stuff in Rhode Island, um, although he keeps a pretty low profile, um, at least online. So, so Asa, let's uh, before we move it forward to even to more of your stories and your perspective, uh, I'd like to hear a bit more about Fisher. So you saw him from the time he was a teenager and then obviously he ascends over, you know, the pen- pending 10 years from your first encounter to become world champion. Like how often would you see him around New York? And and I'm also curious eventually what your last memory of Fisher is like uh, in real life. Okay. So let's see. What should we say? Uh, Fisher was basically uh nocturnal he wasn't seen during the day <laughs> like i would hang out and i would be playing chess in central park during the day and then in the evening i would come um to one of these clubs i say manhattan would be the first one so fisher would arrive in the evening and the other of what i call his entourage there was a player you might have never heard of but it was a very strong master named james gore a very tall blondish red-headed guy maybe six four taller than fisher and he was a good friend of uh, Fisher and Bernard Zuckerman and uh, Jackie Beers and me. So after playing in Manhattan, um, Fisher's main interest besides chess was food. <laughs> and he liked to walk. So after we would play in Manhattan, at some point we would leave and start walking downtown. So sometimes we would eat in the stage or the Carnegie 
delis. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, they were slightly downtown from 61st Street. And other times we would walk all the way to Times Square, all the way to the village, play till the wee hours, then walk back up the east side to the uh, all-night automat in Times Square and play more then. Also, we did play in some of those. There were a lot of clubs in the village where um, they gave you just setting the clock if you ordered like $3 worth of food, you know. It was like a real bargain. Um, we'd play all night in those places. We were, I don't think I ever played Fisher in Rosalimos, but I did hang out there. Ah, uh, yeah. A famous club in the village. He had a lot of great stories. I bet. He was always showing all his brilliancy prize games. Mm-hmm. They were big on brilliancy prizes, you know, in the 50s. Now, unfortunately, they're not. But he would show, you know, telling, uh, annotating all his brilliancy prize games. Mm. And how often was Fisher getting, obviously in chess circles, he was getting, uh, the wikis, as you say, were recognizing him and, you know, kind of, I'm sure, forming a crowd. But just in terms of walking the streets of New York, um, was it ever causing a commotion as, as his? No, no one ever recognized him that I can remember walking the streets. But every club we went to, like the Flea, yeah. the Flea House, you know, affectionately known, Flea House, the Chess and Circle Club of New York in Times Square, that's where... All everybody who came here from Europe, that's the first place they would find. I mean, I met oodles of grandmasters there. You know. So yeah, of course they all recognized him, him there. And were these meetings typically arranged by phone, or was it just like you? No, bought- no, they weren't arranged at all. We would just turn. We would just uh, turn up. So Asa, you had something else to say about Fisher? Yeah, we played quite often on and off between the years of. 17 and 22. Remember, we were the same age. Then um, I got drafted into the Army, and I think, I forget when, but at some point, Fisher went off uh, to California. But maybe that was later. I don't know. I got my dates wrong. Anyway, I remember I only saw him twice after he won the World Championship. They had a, a fair for him at City Hall. He got the keys to the city. And, you know, he said he was going to be a fighting champion and build the, the house with a spiral staircase shaped like a rook. And all of that stuff is pretty well documented. But unfortunately, as we know, uh, he never played again until the rematch with Spassky, which he just did for money. Yeah. You know, and got him in trouble. Of course, I told people even then, and I, I mean, I told him that for 30 years, he only needed a tax lawyer. I mean, people make it sound like they want to put him in jail for violating sanctions and playing in Yugoslavia, right? Right. But everything in this country, in this world, is just over money. If he said, I want to come back to the U.S. and pay the taxes on $3.5 million, they would have been very happy to have him. He didn't want to pay. Yeah. (laughs) So he lived all over the world, you know, like instead. Yeah, it's it's sad. So so you last saw... So you saw him twice after he won the world championship. And in terms of um, his mental health, you mentioned it was a concern kind of from first meeting him in the sort of decade leading up to him becoming world champion. Did you notice any changes in his personality? Not that much. It was the same. I mean, he had, to me, definitely paranoid tendencies, but I'm not a, a, a doctor, of course. I'm more of a lawyer. My family are all attorneys. But also, he seemed to enjoy uh, um, degrading all, all of his opponents, especially the Russians, 
like he'd sit, we'd sit playing over games and he'd say, look at this terrible move. Look how weak this guy, look at this guy. It doesn't know the opening. It seemed to me he was trying to build up his confidence, you know, uh, that he could beat these people. Though we were all sure that he could beat them anyway. But as I said, people were worried uh, uh, about his nerves. I mean, you know, the history of uh, match in Iceland. And all. Oh yeah. My father was there actually. Several people I knew were there. Uh, Lombardi, my father, uh, some USCF officials. Brady was there. I don't yeah, Brady was know. there. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I know a lot of those people. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you for that glimpse into into chess history. So we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors, and then I want to hear a bit more about uh, your own chess development. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. ChessMood was founded in 2018 by Grandmaster Avtik Gregorian. It's a chess education platform that gives you a structured path to work to improve your chess. For $29 a month, you get instant access to over 200 hours of Grandmaster prepared video content and includes openings, middle games, and end games. They also have an active online community where you can find training partners and fellow chess enthusiasts. Uh, Don't forget to check out their free content. They have a great blog where their grandmasters share uh, their own thoughts on chess improvement. I get it delivered to my inbox. So to learn more about uh, Chess Mood and what they offer, be sure to check out their website, chessmood.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And, and we are back. And before we move to the next topic, Asa, you were saying you have something else to, to, to share about Fisher? Yeah. When Dr. Brady was a um, president of the club, I guess it was shortly after Fisher's demise, he held a Fisher symposium and a lot of people came and uh, gave their opinions and stories and whatever about Fisher. But I mean, I thought a lot of them were ridiculous because they never met him. I mean, they're, they're psychologists analyzing him who didn't meet him. They're, they're just guessing. So I told a lot of great stuff. I know I got huge rounds of applause. I actually gave that speech twice because a lot of people missed it, so they had it again, you know. So I got kind of a kick out of that, you know, firsthand. Was there a, firsthand was there a particular applause line that, that landed with people? Well, I don't know. Just um, let's see. Well, a lot of us considered. People ask me, "Yeah, was Fisher the best?" I think we thought he could win the world championship, and we thought that he could be the best. But I say he cannot be considered the best because Karpov and Kasparov were world champions for ten years, right? Yeah, and Fisher only won that one match, so you can't call him the best, but there are indications that he could have been. He had the best five-year average, I guess, you know, peak years. And also he they did a study and he chose the computer move more often than any other player in any world championship. But I know I wrote it and I said a few times, besides his eccentric behavior, <laughs> he'll be best remembered as the last individualist in chess, right? 
He had no seconds, no teams, no computer, no nothing. He did it all on his own. He studied old books and manuscripts in various languages, including books on how to give odds and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, he gave material odds uh, to a lot of people. He was good at that. Yeah, there's lots of famous stories in chess gambling lore. I think I've mentioned in the podcast in the past of like, uh, you know, Jinji giving peace odds and having to checkmate someone on the C3 square or some, you know, stuff like that. Did you did you ever witness any stuff like that with Fisher aside from, as you said, him giving you 20 to 1 money no, odds? No, he, he would give people, uh, I heard when he was younger, he would give people five minutes to one. And if they were weak enough, of course, he beat them. But uh, when I played him, um, a couple of times he did give me like a pawn and two moves, but I decided it's more fun to play even and get and get money odds. You know, it's I don't think it's constructive to learn getting material odds. But I played people and um, they had to name the square that they wanted to be mated on or they would win. But uh, really, that's not that hard against an average player. You just you just take off some of his pieces and make a few queens and you just chase him to you know, the designated square. That's not that hard. Yeah, it would only be a challenge if you had very little time, like if you're starting the game with like less than a minute. Yeah. Um, well, I tried to avoid uh, playing with very, very little time. In other words, I mean, my whole life I was there to amuse people, <laughs> but I want to win something. I, I don't want to cause myself unnecessary stress. I remember once, um, when I was giving someone five to one in the hot sun, and I ended up with a, some bad uh, heart palpitations. Mm-hmm. In other words, I got put in the hospital giving people five to one. So after that, I stopped doing it. Five two was the maximum. Five to one in the hot sun. That that could be an alternate book yeah. title for you, Asa. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Um, but uh, but I was down in Wall Street, which is another place I play it all the time by the World Trade Center. Yeah, a lot of uh, legendary uh, chess hustling stories from from wall street so you would play wall street uh of course there's been union square washington square the chess clubs chess forum chess shop am i am i leaving any place out asa okay i didn't play in a lot of those places i stay away from washington square and union square oh okay um but um down by the world trade center was very good we have a saying you can't squeeze blood out of a stone Right, I'm as you of know, course, like, yeah. same, like playing poker. We're looking for friendly opponents who have money and are happy to lose it, right? Or at least not very unhappy, you know. And they pay when they lose, right? You know? And all stuff like that. Because uh, I've been that way for a long, long, long time. You know, when you first start out, you'll play anybody for any stake, and then you find out that some people don't want to pay, some people want to start fights, and it's not worth it. You know, it's much better to just stick to friendly opponents, which, uh, Oh, Bryant park. I played in. Yeah. Bryant park was very pleasant and Liberty park world trade center. The other parks, uh, I don't play in. Okay. And, and Asa, of course, um, you went to some, some top schools, uh, in your teenage years. And then you went to Columbia university for a year and ended up uh, pursuing chess. Um, so what, what was the chess world like then? And what, what did it mean to drop out of university to pursue chess at that time? Well, needless to say, my family were all attorneys. Uh, they were very disappointed, but, and so were a lot of other people, but 
a lot of these people measure life uh, by how much money you make. But they were worried that I would starve to death. So I wrote a couple of places. I mean, I have made a million dollars, but I, that's what I made in my whole life. Right. And I didn't save it. I lived on it. But I didn't, you know, like starve ever. And this is without giving, you know, um, hundreds of expensive chess lessons a week. For years, I've been giving a lesson here and there, and I'm charging a relatively small small amount. You know, I found it funny. Three or four people said, well, you know, you should charge $100 hundred dollars an hour you're famous but they didn't volunteer to pay me the hundred dollars an hour right. to teach them or their kid i just suggest i charge that to somebody else uh, but i didn't but i did get well i was interviewed by these people who made fisher documentaries right fisher against the world yeah. and and some other stuff i was in i think three of them i don't remember yeah and then there's the you know, the classic chess movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, you were featured in, but I understand that that you didn't come to an agreement with, with them in terms of, like, participation. Okay. Um, I didn't want to play myself because I wasn't eager to get up at 6 in the morning and spend a couple of weeks in Washington Square. So, basically, I signed my name and got a thousand dollars. I like I like jobs like that. <laughs> and Austin Pendleton uh, portrayed me in the movie, and I didn't have to go to work. <laughs> That's just simply. Oh yeah, and people always said that I objected to the way they portrayed me in the movie, but they don't understand the film industry. This is why they pay you money to sign a release. They can portray you any way that they want, as long as they don't say you're. A, a terrorist or a child molester or something like that. My first wife was a member of Screen Actors Guild. So, you know, she was a, a bit of an actress. So I knew all about that stuff, you know, when they first approached me. Did you did you hear the, did you see the news story that uh, legendary uh, former Women's World Champion Nona Gaprindashvili is suing uh, the Queen's Gambit because um, they they said inaccurate things about her in the movie? Okay, I saw it, and I think that she is likely to win some kind of settlement, but not $5 million. Right. Because they definitely said that she only played against women, and which wasn't true, and she played against, you know, many, many grandmasters and, and beat many of them. So it's not true that she played women only. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I told you I'm an amateur lawyer. I think she's entitled to something, but not family. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting because it's really kind of like an own goal by the uh, by the producers of the the series because uh, from what I've read, it, it wasn't in the it didn't say that in the novel, and it wasn't really material to the plot. You know, they didn't need to put that in there. Um, but uh, hopefully the hopefully the uh, the the series generated enough revenue where, as you say, she she can get paid and we can all move on. Yeah, well, I'm sure they made a fortune from that thing, and maybe they'll have maybe they'll have the further adventures of Beth, or they'll come with another character. I don't know, and, you know, and make more money. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. But Asa, I want to get a little more color about your your university decision just because the world was so different then i mean obviously chess has been through many changes but just generally so 
you were, I'm, I'm being that I know you were top 25 when you were age 21. So this would have been a couple years before that. So I'm sure you're top 50 player in the country. Um, so are you mostly at the time, like in order to support yourself, were you, were you playing people in blitz? Were you giving lessons? Um, what was your day to day like then? Okay. Um, as we mentioned, I've been playing chess since I've been three years old, but I wasn't a serious student of the game. And I actually did not become a master until I was 19 years old, which by today's standards would be like an old man. But there weren't that but many was, masters then, we should say. It's not like... Well, there was enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but anyway, um, I played chess like twice a week when I was in high school, uh, one day in the, in the club at Horace Mann, and another day in my father's chess club, which was the London Terrace chess club that met once a week. But... When I went to Columbia, now I finally met a bunch of people who were better than me, like the Alt brothers, Robin and Leslie Alt, one of them won the U.S. Junior, Mike Valvo, and some other strong players. So this got my interest going to improve and get to beat them. And I actually did I did end up with a higher rating than all of them uh, except uh, Valvo. But I did beat them in like 14 moves once, mm-hmm. like – that's my first book. So, yeah, so I didn't really make master until um, I was 19. I won the, I won, the, I won some stuff, I guess, in the, tied for first in the New Jersey Open, and I won the New York City Junior Championship and stuff like that. Like, uh, So master at 19, I mean, now they're all masters at 12. Yeah, that's crazy. And what did you do to get better when once you finally got serious about it? Um, okay. Um, when I met Fisher and Zuckerman, they're reading these magazines. So I asked, what's that? And they replied, that's Russian comic books. <laughs> but you can guess what they were. It's Shakmati Bulletin and Shakmati Magazine, which had all the latest analysis. Of course, you had to read a little Russian. So I got a little Russian English dictionary, you know, and I could get along. So here you have every month all the latest opening analysis which almost all of the players in the country did not know, except for the ones who read that. I can tell you who, who read that stuff. The Byrne brothers, Lombardi, Evans. Krzyzewski didn't read, I guess. But uh, anyway, only the top professionals knew this stuff. You, one would wonder, how did I get to be number, whatever, number 21 when I was 21? Because those players were talented amateurs, most of them. Right? They were not professional players. Benko came. So just the American-born grandmasters that I mentioned and Benko, those were the pros. And uh, I think if I hadn't been drafted, I would have ended up most surely in the U.S. Championship. I mean, I would have knocked off a few of them pretty easily, but most of them, just they just really weren't that good. It was a different world. You couldn't be a professional. Only a few people even tried to be a professional chess player of any kind. So when you were drafted, did you get shipped off to Vietnam? Or? Luckily not, because those were the years I was drafted. And I even played a little chess. I won the championship of the First Army. And I played in the All-Armed Forces Championship in Washington, D.C., where I finished third. That tournament was very strong. There might have been five or six uh, masters in there. But also, there was no prize money. So uh, I've always been motivated by the chance to win something, you know. 
that's in my blood. So yeah. I might have played better if there was some cash there. Yeah, my memories from my days where I was most active at the Marshall would be like for the Thursday night tournaments, you would you would sometimes show up and see who was playing. And if you felt like it was a good bet for you to win money, you would you would play. And if not, you would skip it. Very, very sort of disciplined approach. Yeah, it was a lazy approach. <laughs> I mean, you could call it disciplined or not. I mean, the times I played in that um, – New York Masters thing, I actually did quite well, but I, I I remember skipping a few of those because they were so strong. But I think that was a mistake because I should have just played anyway. Um, you know what that was, Shahadi and uh, John Fernandez. John Fernandez, yeah. um, they organized those. And in those tournaments, you know, my greatest success, I beat Kamsky. That's the highest rated player I've ever beat. Amazing, 2777 yeah. US. And I've I got a kick out. I beat Becerra twice in a month, and Bonham played him like fifty times. I'll never go win a game because you know Bonham is Bonham and Road are like my rivals. You know, in the Marshall, even though, of course they're better than me. Yeah. So Michael Road, of course, has been on the podcast. Uh, famous American grandmaster, who's also a writer and an attorney. Um, fun interview. I recommend you guys check that out. And Jay Bonin has not yet been on the podcast, but absolute New York legend. And since you mentioned him, Asa, um, we have a question for him. So just to say a bit more about Jay, of course, he wrote this book, Active Pieces, which I've not had a chance to read, but uh, people say is uh, is very good. And uh, just the the ultimate uh, chess warrior just plays in so many events. I've played him a bunch of times. He almost always wins, unfortunately, um, or at least has over the years. Um, so this question is from Alex Friedman. And Alex, thank you for supporting Perpetual Chess. Uh, Alex asks, he says, how many times have you played versus Jay Bonin over the years? And what is your most memorable experience from your games with him? Okay, I'm sure I played Bonin uh Hundreds of times. I know he played Privman the most. Who passed yeah, away rest in peace. recently. Yeah. I don't know how many games. 400. God knows how many. The unfortunate thing is, Jay and I, I first played Jay in the early 70s, but the USCF only keeps records since the early 90s. So I've lost 20 years, of, basically, of my tournament results and my results against each player, etc. Luckily, I've saved all my best games, and Jay had a tendency to throw stuff out or lose them or whatever. So Greg Keener, who was one of the managers of the, the Marshall, he helped me write a book on the Czech Benoni, and he helped Bonin um, uh, write his book, uh, The Active Pieces. I must say about The Active Pieces, my professional opinion, <laughs> there were too many games against very weak players there. In my chess books, I don't have any games against someone who's not at least a master, unless it was some like an incredible brancy. So I said it was unfortunate that Bonin lost so many square sheets because he could have easily written 100 grandmasters I have beaten, you know, right. something like that. Because he has the reputation that he's beaten the most grandmasters of a non-grandmaster in this country, and he still plays in everything. You have to admire his love of the game. Like you mentioned, well, I might look around to see if I have a chance. Jay would play in a tournament with nine grandmasters and him and two prizes. I mean, nothing, nothing would scare him away. Anyway, I first met Jay. I gave an exhibition in his college, and uh, you know, it was a little unassuming-looking fellow. He doubled his weight, I guess, and now he lost. Now he lost 
second half back again. But I said, from looking at him, he was so mild looking. You never dreamed that this one would become the I am, you know, that he would be a killer and all. Anyway, out of all those games, I don't, I can't name one that was memorable. I would say he wins about two to one ratio, uh, which is about right for our ratings and age. I'm spotting him 13 years. But, uh, you know, I won, I won a, a few good ones. I mean, he swindled me many times, of course. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we did play a blitz match a few years ago. Well, that's where the the age spot hurt me the most. Um, somebody promoted a blitz match, and uh, they put together a very nice book of it called Iron Man versus Gladiator. <laughs> he, he's the Iron Man. I'm the Gladiator. He won eight to five, which, again, it was like a – a reasonable score. I guess that book is out there. I don't have any even. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a respect respectable showing for sure. Jay's Jay's a tough customer. Oh yeah, he's actually he has a reputation of not being a very good blitz player, but he's really quite good. I mean, he's had over twenty four hundred blitz rating for years. You know, he's not a slouch. It's just he's much better in thirty minute games. Right. He's better in thirty minute game than slow game. I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's good at managing. What I find is I can't play two slow games a day. I get tired. If I put in some effort in the first game, I'll fade out and, and play very weakly the second game. So now for quite a few years now, really, I just play, you know, 30-minute game or a blitz. So, Asa, <laughs> I want to hear about more of your encounters with uh, these chess legends. But first, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess, of course, collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you an actionable study plan. So it's a great resource for players and coaches alike. It tells you how you compare to your rating peers in openings, end games, time management, all that stuff. It told me I was behind on the clock in 87% of my recent Blitz games. I think I might need to work on that. And thanks to AimChess for pointing that out. But it's a great product. Go to AimChess and check it out. And if you decide to try out a subscription, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. As always, the info you need is also in the show notes. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by our longtime sponsors, our original sponsors, Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which utilizes space repetition to help you remember openings, tactical patterns, whatever it is that you're working on. They have a huge library of courses, including the free short and sweet versions of various openings. Speaking of openings, they just dropped Lifetime Repertoires, The London System by Grandmaster Lequang Liam. Love or hate the London, you got to know what to do against it. So be sure to take a look for that. And don't forget to sub to the How to Chess podcast hosted by yours truly. We just had Peter Fiddler on, other big guests in the works. So all the links you need are in the show description. Let's get back. Back to talking chess. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So, and we're back. So, Asa, um, 
Yasser Sarawan edited your book. I understand you've had some interactions with him. He's always a, a crowd pleaser. I also hope to interview him someday. Um, what what were your interactions with Yasser like over the years? Well, I first met him when he was a teenager. I know he wrote in the introduction um, to the book that he was impressed with me, and uh, I was very impressed by him because of his I mean, his very good manners, his gentlemanly demeanor, you know, his, his good dress, his honesty, his forthrightness. He said what he, what he thought, just the same as I did. You know, he didn't he didn't pull pull any punches. We never played a tournament game. We played some blitz for fun, um, which were friends. Basically, over the years, the only people I played chess for fun with would be grandmasters. If they asked me, I didn't want to say, well. I only play for money. Right. <laughs> I would play a grandmaster if they asked me. And uh, we also played, uh, I mean, I have a, a little story. I was playing Ginger Hasvili at some tournament, getting money odds, and I won. So Yasser came and asked, can I try? So I said, yeah, same odds. You know, it was like six to one or eight to one money odds. I said, you can try. I just want to warn you that it, it's not as easy as it looks, <laughs> right? Because when you look from the side, you see how the guy should have beat me or could have beat me every game. Uh, but when you're actually playing and you're nervous about giving those money odds, it's not so easy. And sure enough, I beat him. I beat almost every player that gave me money odds ex except for Fisher. And a couple other people who just, they just moved so incredibly fast. I mean, I don't know how they did it, but... I could never make them even. <laughs> I took off like who? To their pieces. I remember a name, Ramarat. You know that name? I do not know that name. Philipp a Philippine guy. Okay. I don't know if he's plays or if he's dead or alive, but he was very fast. And maybe a couple others that played like three minute chess. They weren't even titled, I think, some of these. You do see people like that. Less now than, you know back down but they were just they just had incredibly quick quick side of the board yeah um and in terms of uh playing games for money did did you ever have any like super high stakes matches i don't know if you know tom murphy that was i, I interviewed him once and he told some fun stories about like reeling in some fish i guess you could say um did you ever have any sort of epic stories like that asa i won a lot of money from several different people which uh I have. Uh, I wrote about that, you know, in the upcoming book, which we know everybody's going to buy, yes, of course. Definitely. But we didn't play for high stakes each game. Um, of all the games, let me see. I hardly ever really played for more than ten bucks a wow. game. I wouldn't believe it, but I rolled in a, a lot of games. I mean, sometimes I play for twenties. I remember once in the flea house, I played for fifty dollars. This guy comes in, obviously drunk. And I gave him a half an hour against five minutes for 50 bucks. Sure enough, <laughs> before I know it, I'm in trouble. <laughs> the guy's an expert, and I'm short of time. And luckily, he had been drinking there. I, you know, I think he would have won. He, he blew it near the end. But I said, mostly I went like a, all that money that I made in my lifetime that I talk about, most of it was for exactly $5 at a time. In other words, I, I played for a dollar, of course, in 1960. Right. But through the years, I was like, you know, like a $5 man, pretty small. Yeah. And then 
As the years progressed, did you ever, you mentioned doing some lessons, did you ever sort of transition to more lessons or like, have you predominantly supported yourself from, from uh, earning money from tournaments and from playing people for money or like uh, to what extent were the lessons supporting you? Um, almost all the money I made, as I said, was $5 at a time. Wow. I did a little writing, a few lessons. I mean, at my most active, I would maybe give three lessons a week. I never gave lessons day and night. Um, I had a couple, uh, you know, rich and talented students, but unfortunately they changed teachers, you know, I don't know why. I was playing a kid who was five years old. It was like best I've ever seen uh, of that age. But was this? He left me. Was this, That's one of the few that I regret. Was this recent or? Oh, it's some years ago. The guy's not a master or anything. It's just you know, I never saw anybody who was five play that well. You know? Wow. He was uh, um, young players. Um, well, you know, I have another chapter in my book that's called Beat Them Before They Grow Up. Oh, <laughs> actually, excuse me. That's not this book. The next chess book I write has a chapter, Beat Them Before They Grow Up, where I have games where I beat Fabiano, Hess, Lenderman. Excellent. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the other ones. And I be, used to be crushed all the time, of course. But I wrote that she would be a grandmaster, and it took her a while, but she made it. Yeah, I had some uh, encounters with a young Irina as well. She was beating me from a, a very early age. Um, yeah, well, I, I caught her when she was young enough that I <laughs> could beat her. Yeah, well, and also, then we didn't play for quite a while. But <laughs> um, then she came back, and she's been beating me. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned your book a few times, um, and we have another question from a Patreon supporter of the podcast. Uh, Tyron Ross Price asks, he says, I love chess stories, and I know that Asa has great stories to tell. So obvious question, when will your memoir be completed, and will it be available as an ebook? Um, we think it will be an ebook because we're publishing it ourselves uh, with some company, and they're going to put it, I guess, everywhere that you can. So it, yeah, my wife says it, it, it will be an ebook and it'll be out sometime next year. Okay, and Asa, it'll be print, it'll be print on demand. She says, ebook, hard copy, um, and everything. Excellent. Well, be sure to uh, send me a message when it's out, and I'll be sure to mention it on the podcast. Yeah, well, yeah it'll be, it'll be, it'll be all over. Excellent, and and Asa, I was thinking. Oh, yeah, the guy said he loves stories. Oh, yeah, excuse me. Dr. Brady uh, recently wrote an introduction to this book, and he said the most incredible thing about it is that there are no chess games in it. <laughs> he says it's the greatest, you know, he wrote some very nice stuff about it. He said, unforgettable, this and that. Well, since he wrote that, I did sneak in that one game with Fisher because that helps sell all books. But basically, that's not a game collection book, but it's, you know, stories of all the different venues where chess and every other game was played you know. yeah before we were recording you mentioned you've you've met every world champion since since, since Irva. wow that is amazing uh, i met most of them um in the various different manhattan chess clubs and some in some in the marshall chess club i mean carlson and a couple others i guess i met there i mean if you want to know some of the legends that i used to play well we mentioned Rosalimo. I used to play Nidorf all the time. What was what were those experiences like playing Nidorf? 
Nidorf was was a fun player. It was he was always offering people. Uh, I give you ten to one. I give you twenty to one. But if you won, he would say, "No, you're too strong. I don't pay." <laughs> but he, he never seemed to take anybody's money either. So he was jolly. Also, if there was a forced capture on the board for you, he would make your move <laughs> and push the clock for you. But he insisted upon playing seven minutes instead of five uh, because of his age. How old was I mean, he? I also played, oh, he was old already when I played. I mean, in his 70s, okay. I guess. Edward Lasker, uh, he used to play in the Rapids, but he said he should be entitled to more, take more time again, you know, because of his age. But I played people older than Lasker. I played Herman Helms. He was like 90-something. Well, so was Lasker. Well, then, you know, I played a lot of people who were born in the 19th century. Just amazing, so many stories. So, uh, obviously, we, I feel like we've covered Fisher pretty well. Are there any other stories that uh, that Frank highlighted in the introduction or that, that you find uh, particularly noteworthy that you could share with us, Asa? Well, I'm trying to think. I just, well, I said I won a lot of chess tournaments. If you count quads, mm -hmm. I don't really, I mean, I must have won hundreds. Oh, and rapids too. I won hundreds and hundreds. But I just recently played a kid who beat me and then drew with Lapson, and he won a tournament in the Marshall. And he said he had just won $6,000. And where did he win it? Under fourteen hundred in the world. Oh wow! <laughs> so when I think of my great career, and I won like seven hundred dollars twice, you know, and here's a guy, um, you know. So anyway, I did not make my money playing tournaments. So that, that's for sure. I had some, I had some good results. Yeah. Um, well, I enjoyed playing in this uh, bar point club a lot. I mean, the Mars and Manhattan are famous, but the heyday was of chess in New York, and it was a bar point club run by Bill Gorchberg and later Steve Emmett. And a lot of the Russian immigrants began there. I'm thinking of Kudrin, Gorich, and Bass, uh, and a few others. Whereas everybody in New York, you know, played in those tournaments. Oh, yeah, well, in those tournaments, I'll tell you the tragedy of my my FIDE rating of, you want to know why I'm not an IM? Everyone asked me that. They had regulations where you had to play four rated players in the same event for it to be rated, right? So in the typical weekend Swiss, my first opponent was somebody like 2,000 or even less. And those people didn't have ratings in those days, right? Now everyone has a rating. Right. So I very often won every game, including beating a couple of IMs and a couple of GMs. And none of those games were ever rated. So that's my sour grapes about the rating. I mean, I think I should have had a, a FIDE rating of about 2450 because I had a U.S. rating near 2500 Yeah. So I made the FIDE master by norms fairly easily, but I did. I missed the IM norm, you know, like a couple of times. I mean, if my rating had been much higher, then, it's, you know, it's much easier to make a norm. You just make an even score and, you know, in a tournament with, a, with people that, you know, are like 2,500, 2,450. Yeah, I don't know if the system's really necessary, as I, um, I've talked about on the podcast in the past, the, the norm earning system. But um, 
So, Ace, of course, you play a lot more than chess, as as the title The Last Gamesman suggests. So, um, for obviously, this is a predominantly chess audience. So, to, to what extent will your book be about chess, and to what extent will it be about all the other games, which we can discuss a little bit? Okay, half the, half the game, half the book is chess. There's many chapters, about half of them are chess. Well, she says more than half. <laughs> so at least half okay. is on chess and chess-related, and the other half are uh, on other games, which are Scrabble, Scrabble Bridge, Poker, Backgammon, going to the racetrack. And I also have some stories about that are very interesting, even though I'm not really a player of, like, gin rummy and checkers okay wow and interspersed with all those things are stories from the streets and parks of new york like how i was lucky to survive many times you know like fights and attempted robberies and all kinds of uh, shenanigans you know it's like you know i've frequented bad places late at night (laughs) very often where they're playing these games but so now really i just I haven't been doing anything. I mean, as you know, online poker is not legal in New York, and I'm not going to some underground club somewhere where I don't know where I'm going. I really don't even go out at night. You know, so I really just play chess online. I haven't played much of those other games um, at all. Okay. And what was your what was your scariest encounter in terms of like a robbery or an unsettled debt? Well, I don't have unsettled. I mean, not on your end. end. No, no, I don't have. No, I've had people threaten to beat me up after I asked them for money that that they owed me. Yeah. But it never came to that. But no, I was was threatened by people, you know, with with guns and knives, um, usually with the, you know, intention of... uh, Like, did someone... Trying to rob me or they had some grudge. Did someone actually, like, point a gun at you or... Someone pointed a zip gun at me in the flea house, and I didn't even know what it was. I don't know what it is. But somebody told me it was a well, It's like a home homemade gun. It has like a like a taser like a sort of thing. Okay. No, it shoots bullets. Oh wow! Just like one, I guess. So that was kind of scary. So and you know, some people have you know like approached me menacingly, you know, on the street late at night, like in Times Square. Yeah. And I. Luckily, you know, bluffed my way. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I can tell you one of those stories. We want to hear the, sure. the graphic one. Okay, a guy comes to me and holds up a tote bag, and he says, I got a gun in, a, you know, in my bag. Give me all your money. So I put myself in the place of the robber, and it seemed to me if I have a gun, I want the victim to see it and know that I have a gun and be scared, right? So I told this guy, show me the gun, and I'll give you the money. Otherwise, get the hell out of here. He left. Wow. You know, you can say, I was lucky. I bluffed him out. Poker player, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I was lucky. Maybe I could have been killed. Yeah. I- <laughs> but another another time, uh, someone called my bluff. I'll just tell you one more of the fight stories. I'm minding my own business. I'm in the Flea House Club. I'm sitting there, and guy walks in, you know, looks around, looks at me, and says, I bet you're one of those guys who hangs around here, you know, hustling people, taking people's money, this and that, you know. 
So I jump up and I say, who the hell are you to come here and talk to me like that? This is my territory. <laughs> the guy rolls up his sleeves, puts up his dukes. He's got one of these nasty rings on that cuts your face open. He says, come on, you so-and-so. Let's go. Call my bluff. I ran out of the joint. Well played. <laughs> Clint Eastwood says, a man has to know his limitations. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a wise decision. Um, yes. So I would say I've been lucky. I had, well, I mean, you know, I have a lot of these things, you know, described. I don't want to just tell fight stories. Most of them involved other people. But there were a lot of doozies, right? Even in chess clubs between chess masters. Quite strange. I'm sure. Chess players are supposed to externalize their regressions playing chess. So people are always surprised you know, when punches start flying. <laughs> um, so what would you say is your second best game, Asa, assuming that chess is your best game? Okay. I would. They didn't have official ratings then, but I would guess I was in the top 20 actually in Scrabble. Oh, wow. Uh, because Scrabble is a game that's half vocabulary and half strategy. It's not all vocabulary. Very strategical. Also, I took five years of Latin. That helps with the vocabulary. And you have to memorize a whole bunch of little words, but that's not that difficult. In other words, I was quite good at that, but the people who were the real grandmasters of that game, they could they could beat me easily. And it seemed like in chess, like back in the day, all the best players were in New York. Because any time any of these people ever went anywhere else, they destroyed people at Scrabble. And anybody that I met, you know, that, like wasn't one of them, I easily beat them. Okay, I'll give you a Scrabble story because I actually did hustle somebody. As you know, I've been written up, you know, as a hustler and this and that. I hardly ever hustled anybody. But here I hustled someone. I went with another guy and we pretended to be students at NYU. And we played Scrabble for a dollar a point which is a very big stake. And in those days, even bigger. That's the 1960s. So that was a hustle. I pretended to be a student. I wasn't. And also I was a professional game player. I said, you know, I just play. So, you know, we won a couple hundred, but, you know, that was a big hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, whatever, you know, you got to multiply everything by 10. Yeah, and and by by the distinction of hustle, of course, you mean like if you're hustling someone, you're misrepresent, misrepresenting right. your okay. your skill. But otherwise, okay, right. My entire life, I you know, I did play in streets and parks. If people asked me my name, I told them. If they asked me my rating, I told them. I never would say, "Well, I'm a pretty good player," right? Which a lot of people do, or "I'm a fourteen hundred," which a lot of people do. Now, I played people. I told them my rating was twenty four X. They didn't believe it. I beat them, and then they say, well, I find it funny that a real amateur has trouble telling a 2,000 from a 2,400. They actually do. They just know that they're better than you. Right. So they would say, well, I guess you might be some kind of expert, but you're not 2,400. So I'd say, well, I'm sorry I don't play up to your standards. <laughs> I'm just trying to win. Right. But when I did play people in the park and I could like, literally make them in four moves, I wouldn't do it. I would string them along. I don't want to discourage them too badly, you know, in the hope that they'll, they'll play another game. But, but, but I say, to me, hustlers cheat in some way, hide your strength, don't pay. Um, you know, cheat. There are people that move the clock from behind the clock with a hand. Oh, yeah. They'll knock a piece off the board in time pressure. All of those are, you know, whatever, hustlers and cheaters. Never resorted to, to anything like that. 
Yeah, it's uh, good good to have a code. Um, so, Asa, obviously, as we've discussed, you decided to pursue chess um, out of university and basically have been playing games your whole life. So I'm, I'm just curious if there were ever moments where you either got a job or felt like you were going to have to get one um, in, in all these years, uh, aside from giving some lessons, of course. No, I had... Uh... I would I would do things, but they were usually chess related. But they were just um, what would you call them? Um, you know, like a job for a day, like giving giving exhibition. I right, of course. I entertained at the like weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff like that, and samples and schools. They were really almost all um, chess related. When I was very young, a guy came into a chess club, no, and he said, "Who wants to load trucks?" And they all said, "Yes, yes, yes." I said, "I only have one question." How heavy is the stuff that we're loading in trucks? In other words, if it's refrigerators or furniture, I'm not going. He says, oh, no, it's all small stuff. So I went. The guy drove us to the job, paid us cash, and drove us back to the club. So I did that, but I remember only once. And I began, I was an office boy for Al Horowitz, who published Chess Review for a short while, but it was too boring. And in those days, I actually worked for like... Two dollars and fifty cents an hour, and pay taxes on that money, and got paid every two weeks. And I found it was much more fun, and I made more money sitting in Central Park playing Skittles for a dollar a game. So I, I, I never went back um, to that kind of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, Asa, this has been great. I'm just trying to think of other New York figures before I let you go. I don't want to forget anyone. So Maurice Ashley, Josh Waitzkin, any stories come to mind? I never played a tournament game with Waitzkin. I guess I probably played on the Rapids a couple of times. Um, actually, I played a few tournament games, most of which he won, but I did win a very good one that's in my first book, The Gladiator. And he was among a group of young players that used to come and train with me, um, playing blitz with me in Carnegie Hall in the 80s. So he's gone far. I mean, he's... Super Grandmaster announcer. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's his thing, along with Shahadis. I know the whole family, father, son, and daughter. And I said, you know, Sarawan, Tarif. And I was, I'm actually, it might even come out before this interview. You mentioned John Fernandez earlier. He's going to help me. We just, we're going to do a podcast about uh, Victor Korchnoy's memoir, Chess is My Life. And um, it came up in the book that he lived in New York briefly, which John, of course, Longtime New Yorker, although he recently moved, um, and I didn't know. Did you have any Korchnoy interactions? Um, actually, not. I, I just met him a couple times. I went and, uh, you know, introduced myself to him. He didn't have much to say. I know, especially when I first met these Russians, a lot of them pretended that they didn't speak English at all. And they also had bodyguards or KGB or helpers around with them. Um, but I think most of them probably understood every word you said. And a few years ago, I met uh, Karpov at the Lugis Club, and we had a very nice chat about everything. As soon as he saw that, you know, I knew all these people, and you know, and we shared stories and this and that. And he was watching my blitz games. I even won a prize at ten minute chess. I remember, so that was fun. Yeah, amazing. He signed some photos for me from the 70s that I still have from exhibitions that he gave. 
Yeah, but it's like most of those Russians, I mean, in the old days, they hardly said anything. But uh, no, I remember, yeah, Tal, we didn't say much. But I said, I said, ah, the Wizard of Riga. So he smiled, but uh, I never really spoke to Korsner. Um I knew Lane fairly well, Anatoly Lane. He, he and I would be guests in Lombardi's house, and we would all play Blitz. In general, uh, he was pretty uh, tough, unpleasant, maybe. But socially, of course, you know, he was nicer. I think a lot of chess players are like that. They're super competitive when they're actually playing a game, but you go to a party with them or, you know, something sociable, and then they're much nicer. And uh, what about Rashevsky? Any interactions there? Okay, well, <laughs> um, I drew a couple of blitz games with him in, just in a tournament in the Marshall. We didn't play, but um, it was funny. I, I've, I just mentioned how disagreeable Lane was, but Lane hated Rashevsky for whatever reason. And he said, Rashevsky, yeah. Even from behind, he is repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't like he didn't like Rusevsky at all. Rusevsky did not have a good reputation. Yeah, I've heard that among players. I, um, I mean, you must have heard these stories. He offered a draw to Fernand, to John Fedorowitz, who now thought for a long time, and then Rusevsky said that he hadn't offered a draw. But there were witnesses, right? But the, the most famous one is from 1944. I guess that you heard it. Um, his Rashevsky's flag fell, and the referee grabbed the clock, turned it around, and said that it was Dinker's flag that fell. And then refused to reverse himself, despite numerous witnesses. And what I can never understand is that Dinker characterized Rashevsky as a friend after that incident. If someone did that to me, I would never speak to him again. Yeah. And I was saying, well, the Denker was very big and a Golden Gloves boxer, supposedly, and Rusevsky was a tiny little guy, so I guess if he tried to beat him up, <laughs> he would have gotten a lot of trouble. But I certainly, I, I never would have spoke to him again. Huh. So, But, I mean, of course, he was a great player. Bonin beat, beat Rusevsky on his 27th birthday, and he mentioned it in the book. Yeah. If I had known that Rusevsky was going to play that badly, I, I could have played him. They were They were looking for an opponent that would play uh, Friday afternoon before Rusevsky's Sabbath. So uh, Bonin got the job. <laughs> <laughs> and he, then he beat him. Wow. Amazing to hear all these stories. They said, last thing I think before I let you go is uh, I got to get your take on the world championship. Are you, um, are you, do you have an opinion on who will win? I mean, Carlson is always going to be the favorite. I mean, you know, you want to make book on these things, I guess you got to see Ladbrokes in London. Yeah. But as we know, the last two or three World Championship matches, uh, Carlson was not that impressive in the slow games, and he only won in uh, whatever it was, uh, action. Yeah. Was it 30-minute, the tiebreakers? Yeah, the rapid playoff, yeah. Yeah, he won in, he won in rapid playoffs. And Caruana... I mean, he's great, but Kyron uh, is much weaker in blitz and not bad in rapids, but, you know, he's a slow player. So this guy, uh, whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe he has a better chance 
than Carolina. Because if he could hold his own in the slow games, um, I think maybe he's a better quick game player than Carolina. I'm not really sure. I mean, Carolina's another one I know since he was six years old. Something like that. One of the tiniest little guys. Yeah. I like him a lot. I'm always yeah, no. a modest, modest guy, and his his family were nice. Yeah, so you, I'm sure you played him a few times. I remember he was a fixture at the Marshall uh, as a kid. Um, yeah, I beat him a few times, but um, I, I, I didn't play Nakamura much, but I, I could never beat him. But Bona beat all these people many times. I mean, how Bona beat Kamsky like four times or six times, I can't understand because they seem to have similar styles. I don't know if you're an advocate that um, similar styles – favors strongly the stronger opponent while different styles faces uh, the one with the opposite style has a chance right. like the wild tactician against the positional player we say he has a the puncher's chance but anyway somehow Bonin who was mostly positional won all these games from Kamsky who was uh, you know also positional but he did it. I mean, that's why here's the bone. Yeah. <laughs> he just keeps going. Um, I did think of one more question, Asa. I got to get your favorite chess books before before we let you go. Oh, my God. I read so few books. People ask oh, me, really? do I have hundreds? Do I have thousands? I just have a few books in the house. They're mostly on the Trumpowski and the pseudo Trumpowski and stuff like that. Okay. I like books that have history, philosophy, and psychology of chess and not so many moves. I like Grady's uh, Masters of the Chessboard. Yeah, that's a good one. And, I mean, I even like Ruben Fine's The Psychology of the Chess Player, because mm -hmm. I have some interest in psychology. That doesn't have a, a chess game in it. You must have seen Ruben Fine around too, right? Yeah, yeah, I play Blitz with him. He... Um, yeah, he beat me when I first met him, but a few years later, um, I could beat him. He was quite good. This guy, Bernard Zuckerman, you know, hung out with Fisher. He could beat. He could beat all these people. He, you know, he beat all these people that I couldn't beat. He was a, a terrific blitz player. But he was another one that um, psychological weaknesses or whatever is what kept him. Yeah, mental from being a being a strong grandmaster. Yeah. Let's see, Jesus. I'm I'm bad for favorite. So you just learned from playing. If, I mean, you don't have to force it. If if there were none that were that uh, that important to you, so you just learned from playing a lot and analyzing your games, or what was your secret? Yeah, I played all the strongest players I could find. Speed chess for the smallest amount of money that they would play for. Then I did do a serious analysis of any serious tournament game. As I did with my friends, who included Fisher, which included Fisher and Zuckerman and Mr. Kmach and Lombardi. So I did a serious analysis of serious games. Games where I won too easily, I just threw them out. And I figured there's nothing to be learned by that. And when I was younger, of course, if I made a mistake in the opening, I went to my opening manual. I mean, then it was like modern chess openings. Later it was chess informant and looked to see um, you know, where I made a mistake. So now I'm still playing a little, and the only thing I do is I'm playing the same openings for years, and I'm trying to perfect them 
but I haven't quite done it because I'm just not that motivated to study that hard just to play blitz games for nothing. Right. Though I do get a kick out of it when I beat a lot of these people. Obviously, the ratings on chess.com are skewed. I mean, I'm playing all these people. Some of them, they don't even have a master title. They're a candidate master, or they might be, a, you know, and they're 2,700. So something something is wrong there. Yeah, well, it's a brave new world for chess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's so fun. Yeah. I mean, I get a kick out of, uh, you know, I'm on all these. I'm still only in the top 10 of my age and quick. In slow, I've fallen down a lot because every time someone hits 65, who's good, they get on the list. Ahead. <laughs> and uh, But in blitz, I'm also so close to the top top 10, so not too bad. Of course, I'm the oldest one on the list. Yeah. In all those. I think I actually might be the best player over 75. I believe it. I mean, from my perspective. But there are a lot over 65, definitely much better than me. I mean, there are a lot of grandmasters. But grandmasters who are over 75, they seem to have just totally re- retired. You know, um, I mean, you don't see them around. I mean, you see them writing occasionally, you know. But you don't see them playing, so yeah. I'm always telling people I just need more opponents my age, <laughs> and then I'll definitely be a contender. Excellent. Well, like as I was saying, Asa, I mean, to me, for you, for you to remember all these amazing stories so well, and and still be out, still be battling on the chess internet streets, it's a, it's a, an inspiration. Um, so. Thank you for doing this. Um, if if so, like I said, let me know when your book comes out, and I'll be sure to let the audience know. Yeah. And uh, if people well, listen, go ahead. Anybody who anybody who plays any other game besides chess, I mean, chess will be good enough. They're going to love this book because I just told you a few stories. There's hundreds of stories. There's not a person in the world that knows all these stories because I told them to a few people who are now deceased, <laughs> and also. You would have to be in the same club at the same time as me for 60 years. You know, nobody knows. There are unknown, really unknown stories, and I try to inject a sense of humor as much as I can. Even the ones that we're talking about fights, you know, you know, there, there's like humor there. Well, and I mean, the the racetrack is like a different world. That, no one could even imagine, you know, like all the things that go on there. We're not just talking about, you know, you bet two dollars on your horse and, and roof room. I mean, I did go every, like over every day for like twenty years, and I played for fifty years, and I actually did uh, give it up because, like a lot of other things, it's been influenced by illegal drugs, one way or the other. In this case, they get them to the horses, and also. Computerized data, right. which the public has, combined with an enormous takeout. So, as far as I can see now, I hated to admit it, by the way, but I admitted it now that that I can't win. Yeah, I know some people that I still know some people that win, but they have enormous bankrolls and uh, sophisticated statistics available to them, and some of them are using algorithms and betting 20 horse races in Hong Kong and stuff like that. In other words, this is like big business. They have syndicates even. Yeah. I mean, they're putting up thousands and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Like the average pretty smart schmo 
uh, you can't win anymore. Yeah. But we did win. We were all big winners in the 70s. I mean, it's always shoulda, woulda, coulda. If I had a bankroll of like 100,000 only in the 70s, I think I would have been a millionaire. Yeah. Because I know people that did it, you know, and they didn't start with millions, but they ended with millions. <laughs> Oh yeah, let me just say yeah the the parting story. You know, we they were we were, we were talking about the, um, the um the chess thing. They used to have they had a whole series of these long articles in uh, Chess Life, and people were arguing should you date other chess players or not. And so many of them had a negative opinion, which I think is ridiculous. It's like saying, well, should you date if you're a tennis player, you shouldn't date a, a girl who might beat you or something. Anyway, I just want to tell you, I dated like 12, maybe 12 USCF rated chess players, and I married two of them. Okay. So I'm definitely a, an advocate of going out with chess okay. players. Okay. Good, good <laughs> note to end on. Good life recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Asa, and thank you, okay. Virginia. It was a pleasure. Okay. Uh, you can always give me a call if you think of some question that no one else can answer. Okay. I got, I got the answer. Sounds good, Asa. Looking forward yeah, to the okay. book. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you to everyone who listens to and supports the podcast. And most of all, thank you to my producer, Matthew Passy. Be sure to check us out on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Official one We also have a Perpetual Chess Facebook group where we continue the conversation about each episode. I've even got the Instagram page locked and loaded, actually posting clips every week. So you can follow at Perpetual Chess to catch some clips there. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors, of course, uh, Chessable.com, the original sponsor of Perpetual Chess, Aim Chess, Chess Mood. Thanks. I'm proud to be affiliated with all of these sites. Um, also want to thank Blue Wire Podcast, with whom I partner. Big shout out to Blue Wire. Check them out for sports podcasts. But most of all, I want to thank the individuals who helped make Perpetual Chess go via PayPal or Patreon. And of course, they get to find out the guests, send in questions, hear uh, occasional GM lectures on Zoom, um, and even get ad-free podcasts. So thank you all for supporting Perpetual Chess and keeping it going. So without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog. Shout out to JB. Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services. The Apprentice Twitch Channel. Aniti Deer. Austin Clough. Benjamin Porteau. Bill Sigler. Kathy Carr. Chad Oliver. The Charlotte Chess Center. The Chess Central's Chess Blog. Chessmood.com. Chris Flanagan. Chris Lott. Dan O'Hanlon. Daniel He. Danny Davidson. David Mitchell. I am Dimitri Schneider. Douglas Wilson. I am Eric Rosen. Farhan Thawar. Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Hampus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nilsson, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King's Cell, King's Crusher YouTube channel, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy. The Nerdnace Twitch channel, Peter McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Soddy, Philip Lummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, 
Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of strongchess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patters, which is a chess.com improver group, and Wayne Bean. I would also like to give thanks to East Viega, Adam Fowler, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadai, sorry, Ken, Ken Kabadai, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens of Rose City Chess in Portland, Oregon, Chess for Charity in Jacksonville, Chess Patser, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Chris, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Caros, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskotschek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM, Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Perilla, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letart Lavoie, uh, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, uh, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, Howard V. Han. Uh, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, Jay Tuttle, Jay Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Damas, Dekumus, excuse me, Jesse, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joel Th- Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagor, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfeller, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Fredell, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky of Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Macaulay Peterson, Maria MLU. Emil Yanova, a.k.a. Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matt Ferrari, Matthew Allen Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Milijanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, Pablo Davida, Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management uh, Limited of Switzerland, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Sampson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malugu, The Say Chess, Publishing, Unstoppable, Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergei McCagan, 
Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, Stephen Miller, and Tom George, uh, WGM Tatiav Abrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. So thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.